We live in a post-World War II world. What this means is that everything from foreign relations to the borders of countries across the globe were almost entirely determined by the Allied victory in World War II. In this week's episode of History with Brittany, we'll discuss how this conflict shaped our world today. From the Cold War to the United Nations to NATO to the contentious creation of Israel, so many things that happened throughout these last 75 years have been determined by the outcome of this one war. This episode will discuss a complex relationships between China, Japan, and North and South Korea, the Cold War, the establishment of organizations like the United Nations, and the creation of Israel, and what it would mean if our world changed again. Welcome to History with Brittany, the podcast that explores all things history. Each Wednesday, we'll discuss a historical topic, person, or event, and how it has impacted our world today. So without further ado, let's get started. Part 1. The Three-Way Circle of Hate Do you know what the three biggest economies in Asia are? shouldn't be that difficult to guess. The answer is Japan, China, and South Korea. And due to the circumstances of the Second World War and for some other reasons, they are also all stuck in this three-way circle of hate and competition. Let's start with Japan, which in many ways is the source of all this consternation. In 1853, Japan exposes itself to the world after two and a half centuries of self-isolation. Though some European traders and evangelists had made it briefly onto the island, they were eventually chased away by a country more interested in keeping its traditions than trading with the rest of the world. But by the 1850s, that had all changed, and Japan wanted to expand and create various quote-unquote colonies like the Europeans did. As a nation, Japan had always suffered from one crippling disadvantage when it comes to international trade, its status as a purely import-based country. What I mean is that Japan has to import much of its raw supplies when it comes to basic things. It uses those things it imports to create things that it can export. There's nothing wrong with that, but Japan's ability to raise a significant amount of food or raw materials is difficult because the island doesn't have much to offer when compared to a place like China since most of it is urbanized or just mountainous country with a limited ability to produce raw food or timber or thousands of other materials. Having export-based colonies would help Japan alleviate some of those difficulties. Between 1894 to 1910, Japan took control of a lot of different territories. This includes Taiwan in 1895, Korea as a proctorate in 1905 after the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905, before this concession, China had a significant amount of influence over the Korean Peninsula, but no more. There are a couple different theories about why Japan became such an imperialistic power. While some rely on economic theory, many point to the nationalism and desire to compete with Western powers that appeared were infringing unnecessarily on Asian territories. My personal theory is that it takes both national security and nationalism because they are both intimately connected with economic and national security. Your country can never be secure without safeguarding its supply lines. There's a reason why China built up several islands in the China Sea and tells the Philippines that territorial waters basically to the coast of the Philippines, which is not actually where your territory waters extend to. I think it's about 250 miles off the shore of your country. If it controls those trade lines, which are the most lucrative in the entire world, then can both defend them and demand payment from anyone passing through. So in my personal opinion, it takes all those things combined, national security, competition with the Westerners, nationalism, and imperialism that all drove Japan at that particular time to go out and conquer other nations. Japan also fought in the Boxer Rebellion as part of the eight-nation alliance which included 
the United States, Austro-Hungarians, the British, French, German, Italians, and the Russians. What's interesting to know here that you can probably guess is that Russia and Japan are the only Asian countries, though Russia's main governmental power resided on the European continent. The Boxers were interested in pushing out Christian missionaries and Western powers, and they even had the Dowager Empress on their side. This Western alliance proved victorious because, in part, the Boxers believed that they were immune to Western firearms. Yeah, they were not. Throughout the world, there were also a lot of pushback against monarchy powers, of that list of eight nations have to oppose their monarchies within the next 20 years, and China did so in 1912. After that date, China remained relatively unstable, and that allowed Japan to mount an invasion as part of the Second Sino-Japanese War, which started in 1937, two years before World War II. As the conquerors, Japan was utterly brutal to both China and South Korea. A great example is the rape of Nanking, which was the Chinese capital, and occurred between December 1937 and January 1938. During this conflict, the Japanese committed mass murder, and mass rape throughout the city. According to Japanese post-war records, at least 200,000 Chinese died during the conflict, though China obviously disputes this and claims that the actual total was closer to 300,000. One of the most disturbing things that occurred during this event, and there were definitely a lot, was the contest between two soldiers to see who could kill the most people with a sword. It was even reported in a Japanese newspaper. The other, most disturbing, perhaps the most disturbing aspect of this whole conflict was the use of rape as a tool of humiliation. According to reports, bayonets were often used to kill women, even pregnant women, and many had objects shoved up into their vaginas. In Korea, Japan was equally brutal in many ways. Though the Koreans didn't have to deal with the incoming invasion as the country was already under Japanese control, during World War II, Japan used Korean men as slave labor and women as quote-unquote comfort women, and they were forced to serve basically as sexual slaves in Japanese brothels. This is all to say that Japanese war crimes remain a distinct source of contentions between all three countries. China and South Korea both still have rather sour relations with Japan because of this, and the subject of comfort women still pops up in the media from time to time. A great example of this tension is a picture of Chinese President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Look at the picture. The tension is palpable. South Korea also doesn't have a particularly good relationship with China because of the role it played in the Korean War and the separation between North Korea, which is communist and Chinese-backed, and South Korea, which is Western-backed. Additionally, these countries also fight with each other over various islands and ocean territories due to fishing rights and various other things, although sometimes I think a lot of that is just smoke and something to fight over. Actually, when I was in South Korea for a brief trip, I actually watched a video on the train that was talking about one of these disputes. I can't remember which islands or if it was between China or Japan, but there was obviously a lot of contention and it was a rather kind of aggressive video in a way. So in conclusion, both South Korea and China hate Japan for its role in the war, and South Korea hates China because of its relationship with North Korea and its desire to keep the two countries separated in order to avoid a united Korea from becoming a bigger competitor on the continent. And Japan doesn't hate the two countries, but does want the two countries to forgive and forget Japanese war atrocities. So there you have it. They also are all huge economic competitors and rivals, which also deeply influences the circle of hate. Though the origins of this conflict begin in the Second World War. So next time you hear a news story about the sour relations between any of these countries, now you should know why. 
Part 2, The Cold War. Of course, the biggest outcome of the Second World War was the Cold War, which in a way also consumed the entire world with the threat of destruction through proxy wars fought across the planet. Joseph Stalin was a paranoid and brutal dictator. The purchase of people across the USSR who could possibly threaten his authority helped contribute to his vulnerability during the Second World War. To avoid this happening again, Stalin decided that any territory that the Red Army ran through on its way to Berlin would now belong to the newly formed expanded Soviet Union and eventually the Warsaw Pact, which was the USSR version of NATO. This would most specifically give the Russian territory a buffer between it and a potential future invasion from the European mainland. After World War II, the result was that there were two superpowers in the world the United States and the USSR. This brought about an arms race, and most specifically, a nuclear arms race. Nuclear weapons are interesting when it comes to geopolitics. Everyone wants to have a nuclear weapon because basically it means you're untouchable. If a war starts between two nu nuclear powers, the philosophy of mutually assured destruction basically means that two countries with nuclear weapons will most likely annihilate each other. So no one wants to start a major war with a nuclear power, but it also means that if you don't have nuclear weapons, that another country can basically bulldoze you because they have no means of protection. For example, if Ukraine still had nuclear weapons in 2014, then Russia likely would not have invaded Crimea. In an effort to avoid another nuclear disaster, Ukraine likely made the sort of responsible decision to destroy the nuclear weapons it had left by the USSR. I think now some would agree that was probably a strategic mistake. So after World War II, the United States was the only country that had nuclear weapons, but that only lasted a couple of years. Unfortunately, there was a spy at the Nuclear Development Laboratory at Los Alamos that gave the plans and information to the Russians. Although unrelated, pressure from the Russians wanting to get involved in the Pacific Front actually full, helped fully end the Second World War and encourage the use of the nuclear weapons that we had. Anyways, the threat of a Russian nuke is what drove President Eisenhower to create something that we probably pretty much use every day, although maybe not right now with Corona, especially if you're a resident of LA, the interstate system. Highways were created in part to help move traffic from the East Coast in an event of a Russian invasion with nuclear weapons. So next time you're on I-81 or I-78 or I-90, you can thank the good old Soviets for that. At that time, the Soviets and the United States could only mount nuclear attacks from airplanes. Missiles had not yet come into existence, though they were in development. The US, in theory, if invasion was on its way, could have had enough time to warn citizens and move them away from the East Coast and mount a counterattack. This changed when the Russians launched the Sputnik satellite. So why does a satellite matter? When I was in grad school, it was super interesting to discover that the launching of a satellite basically meant that the Russians had the technology to create missiles, more specifically intercontinental ballistic missiles. That meant concerns about airplanes and highways quickly became a thing of the past. You could just put it on a missile and a nuclear weapon was on its way. The Cold War is called this because the United States and Soviet Union never engaged in a full-scale direct combat, just proxy wars. Some of these include the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Suez Crisis, the first war in Afghanistan in 1987, and dozens of other conflicts that occurred in both large and small scales. Proxy wars work like this. It's a conflict where the major players, in this case the United States and Soviet Union, support or actively engage in combat in the region, but never both at the same time. 
Usually if a country wanted to become communist or was being invaded by the Soviets, the United States would mount a counterattack by directly engaging in combat, in the case of Vietnam and Korea, or by supporting the other non-communist side with military equipment and or funding. So in the case of Vietnam, the Viet Cong, which were in the northern part of the country, were trying to invade the southern part in order to make the whole country communist. So the United States directly intervened in a war of attrition with an enemy that that had Soviet funding. This also happened in 1978 when the the Soviet Union decided to invade Afghanistan. The U.S. helped the Afghanis mount a counterattack through weapons and training, which would come back to bite the U.S. after it invaded the country after 9-11. See, it all sort of connects. But overall, this was a war of ideology. Is a capitalist system better than a communist system? Well, clearly, capitalism won the day, handily, I might add. The USSR, which could no longer support itself and never fulfilled its communist utopia, basically fell apart. There's a lot to talk about with communism and socialism in this day and age. Here's the thing. It never, ever works. The reason why is simple. People are just greedy. Communism says that everybody can work and get equal pay regardless of what they do. This isn't what really happens and nor is it really what people want. People want to be compensated based on the work that they do and the level they perform at, not what everybody else gets because that encourages basically laziness. Yes, most people get the same lousy pay, but the people at the top always siphon what they can for themselves. This also means that people with exceptional skills and intelligence are sometimes ignored or dismissed if they, for example, don't belong to the party. This means that inept people get into positions of power where they can abuse it. Basically, it turns talent on its head. People with skills and ability are diminished instead for party sycophants who basically their only talent is being a party brown noser. A great example of this is the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. A scientist with a PhD is trying to get to the site, but she has to explain everything to a man whose only qualification is being part of the party and formally managing a factory where people can go. There's no way that somebody with a PhD in physics should be held back from a party leader who probably doesn't even have a high school education. Obviously, Russia was a loser in the Cold War, and Vladimir Putin is attempting once again to make Russia a superpower. He very much has that old Soviet mentality of power and control, which actually probably went back to the Romanovs. Russia was really only truly free for a short while. The rest of the former Warsaw Pact, which was much of Eastern Europe, is trying to join either the European Union, NATO, or both. Many try to distance themselves as best they can from Russia, but it's difficult. For smaller countries that border Russia like Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, they are nestled right next to Russia, but they do everything they can to distance themselves. Poland offered to house U.S. missiles um, to protect itself against Iran, but most likely Russia as well. This was several years ago when Obama was still in office. Polish were really happy to have this because it protected them from their decades-long enemy and potential abuser, Russia. This deal that went through a couple of different iterations was eventually inked in 2018, giving the country the U.S. Patriot missile system that they can use to help protect them. Although the Soviet Union fell apart over three decades ago now, much of Eastern Europe remains scared of their powerful and nuclear-equipped Russian neighbor. The fears of the Cold War are still there. Part 3 the United Nations. The most useless, overbloated system in the entire world that's come out of World War II is the United Nations. While the idea behind the UN might have been stellar, its execution and current form leaves much to be desired. Now, the most important thing to understand about the UN and its function is the UN Security Council, which has five permanent members. Those include the United States, Russia, China, France, and the United Kingdom. What do all of these countries, what all of these countries have in common is simple. Can you guess it? Well, they're the Allied victors of World War II. The United Nations actually has its beginning with the presidency of World War Wilson. He had the idea for the League of Nations, which, though enacted, eventually became 
effective after the Japanese invaded Manchuria. In order to avoid a repeat of World War II, the United Nations was created by the Allies, the plans first formulating around 1941 with the declaration being signed on New Year's Day in 1942. I'm sure these world leaders had great expectations for this organization, but unfortunately, it has not lived up to its height. According to the UN website, it's supposed to, quote, take action on issues confronting humanity in the 21st century, such as peace, security, climate change, sustainable development, human rights, disarmament, terrorism, humanitarian health emergencies, gender equality, food production, and more, unquote. Here are just some of the scandals that have plagued the United Nations. After the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, there was an equally devastating cholera outbreak. Though cholera is not uncommon in an impoverished country like Haiti, but it was not a natural occurrence of the earthquake either. The cholera was actually brought by the UN peacekeepers from Nepal. In an effort to keep this from the Haitian forces and the rest of the world, the United Nations Stabilization Mission in Haiti denied that they were the source of the outbreak. An associated press correspondent was able to tour the UN peacekeeper camp and confirm the highly unsanitary conditions. Though there is some debate about its origins, it is undeniable that the UN lied about the conditions of the peacekeeper camp and 10,075 people died. There's also the widespread sex- child sexual abuse committed by UN peacekeepers in a variety of conflicts and post disaster situations. Generally, when the UN peacekeepers arrive in any response, prostitution in that area or region actually goes up. Can you imagine? This international force, which is supposed to help guarantee peace and help your people and country recover, instead encourages or actively develops prostitution rings with underage boys and girls. It's insulting. Here are some examples. In Haiti, 100 UN peacekeepers ran a child sex ring with over a 10 years period. None were held accountable. There are reports from Amnesty International that a large-scale prostitution ring developed around the UN NATO personnel, with underage girls being kidnapped, tortured, and forced into prostitution. In the war-torn Central African Republic, 98 girls claimed that they were sexually abused by those called in as quote-unquote international peacekeepers. It's likely that the abuse committed by the UN peacekeepers is far broader than we even realize. I'm not sure if I can back up this claim, but it seems likely that the UN has done basically nothing to prevent conflict. From the Vietnam War to Kosovo to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to civil war in Sudan, the conflicts across the world continue to happen despite the presence of the United Nations. Well, sure, some conflicts may have been resolved faster and some may have not happened at all, but I highly doubt the UN played a major role. Genocides still happen in multiple places as well under their watch. During the Cold War and even to this day, nuclear weapons, and I would argue the United United States is a real deterrent. The UN is basically a bureaucratic snake pit filled with mostly slick salesmen from a variety of countries looking to score quote-unquote humanitarian aid in order to exploit that resource and enrich themselves while leaving their own people impoverished. I admit, that's a pretty dark assessment, but I don't really see the function, except for it is nice to have a place where everybody can meet and talk together, which they do like one time a year. But most of them do all this anyways at various G summits, so I think I'll stick with my initial assessment. Part 4. The Creation of Israel The decision by the Allies to create the country of Israel as a compensation for failing to stop the Holocaust is nothing short in the explosive history of the Middle East. As a nation, before this point, Israel did not exist except in ancient times. The Jews, as a people, had no country really to call their own. The creation of Israel changed this, and it's difficult as a person of non-Jewish faith to explain how transformative this really was for them as a people. One of the reasons why the Holocaust even occurred in the first place is because of 
of the diaspora that happened in the first century AD. For those that don't know what a diaspora is, it means the spreading of a people group involuntarily. In this case, it was the Jews being dispersed throughout the Roman Empire after the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD. As punishment, in addition to sacking the temple, the Romans spread the Jews throughout the empire to avoid them being able to conspire again. It's the only reason the vast majority of Jews were living in Europe at the time. In the vacuum of Jewish authority in the region, the Palestinians and those of Muslim faith moved into Jerusalem and claimed it as their own. I'm not commenting on the violent history between the Israelis and Palestinians, but there is no doubt that historically, the territory that is now Israel used to belong to the Jews. Though non-Jews lived in the region, the Jews were the ones who settled and really built a lasting kingdom there. There is a long history of animosity between Jews and the people of Muslim faith. A fair number of people trace this history back as far as Ishmael and Isaac, who are both sons of Abraham, who was the founder of the Jewish faith. This is basically an ancient blood feud. That's why anyone who says that there could be peace in the Middle East is utterly insane. Anyways, creating the nation of Israel basically became a call to war. There are a variety of Middle East conflicts centering around this piece of land that's literally only 8,500 square miles. That is utterly insane. But part of the reason violence erupts so much there in the capital of Jerusalem is that it is the center of the three largest monotheistic faiths on earth, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. To the Palestinians, and by the extension the Arabs, Persians, and others in the Middle East that are not Jews, no Jews can be in that region. Though Israel is pretty safe in many areas, those close to Gaza or like the Golan Heights region experience violence and rocket attacks frequently. To the Jews, being in Israel and having more specifically a military is the only way to guarantee their safety after the horrific experience of the Holocaust. Despite the dangers of living with hostile enemies on literally every side, they have much more power now to determine their own destiny, unlike when Adolf Hitler came to power. As a result of this determination, Israel has won every conflict it's engaged in with its neighbors. Israel is also by far the most stable nation in the region, and the only liberal democratic country as well. Its people live a relatively free existence, though I'm sure the Palestinians would strongly disagree. Part 5. What would it mean for the world to change again? Will there be a grand change on the world stage soon? I'm not sure. Currently, the United States remains the world's sole superpower, but China is hot on its heels. As the coronavirus crisis continues to mold and shape our world, many, many things could change. But likely, this won't happen unless the virus kills a massive amount of people, or there is another world war. Wars on such a large scale do have the tendency to reset things and determine world order. At least that's what happened after World War I and World War II. In many ways, World War I was about removing the old regime from power. In most countries, this was signified by the removal of various monarchies. Additionally, because the United States had a minimal involvement in the First World War, they actually came out as the sole global power. It just wasn't a role that we wanted at the time because of the country's historically isolationist policy. We lived in our own world and had little interest engaging in old scores on the continent. World War II both disrupted it and it didn't. The United States still came out as a global power, but the Soviet Union was its clear rival. From the proxy wars to the development of nuclear weapons and the space programs, this all contributed to the rivalry. But the United States won the day demonstrating that capitalism is supreme. But the world, as always, continues to move and change. So what does the world look like in the future? Well, maybe it's just me, but I do hope as an American that the United States remains the world's superpower. But hey, who knows? 
And that is history. Thank you all so much for listening. I just love talking about World War II and its influence, though technically it really was all over when Japan surrendered in September 1945. But I just thought it would be a great topic of discussion since this Thursday, May 7th, is the 75th anniversary of the Nazi surrender in World War II. I hope you all learned something and maybe it might spark something in you next time you listen to the news. Honestly, part of what I love so much about history is how it connects us to today, which sometimes I don't think is discussed enough. Anyways, as always, drop me a line on social media at History with Brittany or visit historywithbrittany.com. I would love to hear from you. Next week, bearing any interesting news worthy of discussion, I'll be talking about the world's most famous painter, Leonardo da Vinci. But until next time, have a great week.